Isaiah 29. And as you're turning there, I want to share with you a little bit about this guy named Louis Zamperini. Have you guys heard of this guy, Louis Zamperini? He was an Olympian, World War II veteran, uh, featured in the book Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand, just in case you're interested in finding out more. And they've done a few movies on his life. Uh, apparently, after a humble upbringing in Southern California, Zamperini ran in the 1936 Berlin Olympics and was actually on the cusp of being the first man to break the four-minute mile. But World War II interrupted his dream, and instead of chasing Olympic glory, he found himself serving as a bombardier on a B-24 Liberator flying over the Pacific Ocean. And so in the war, after a plane crash in May of 1943, he spent 47 days, think about that, 47 days floating on a raft in the middle of the ocean until eventually his raft drifted ashore where he was captured by the Japanese and taken to a POW camp. And that's when uh, things went from bad to worse. He actually entered in a hell, so to speak, beaten almost every single day. They say he was beaten more severely because of the fact that he was an American Olympian. Uh, one of the things when you discover his story while he was out on the sea, he had made a pact with God. He said if God would deliver him, rescue him, save him, that he would, if that happened, serve God. And it, it took time, 47 days at sea, two years and three months in uh, Japanese POW camps and prisons, but after the war ended in the September of 1945, he spent uh, years, even then, trying to drown his sorrows away with alcohol until he finally changed, and he kept the promise that he had made to God back in the ocean. It was at 1949, a Billy Graham crusade, where Zamperini gave his life to Christ and devoted the rest of his days and years, which were 65 years, to be exact, in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and basically, you know, it's one of those stories where God delivers someone from danger. God delivers us, you know, from sin or the sea or near-death experiences, you know, and failures that, you know, we go through in life sometimes that it could ruin everything, and yet here we are today. And, and basically what we find, we're going to see it in our study tonight, is it, it makes sense because of the deliverance that God has given to us that we would serve him with all of our hearts. You know, we're going to see today that that was really the story of Israel, that, that God had delivered them time and time again. And God was just waiting for them to change. And unfortunately, it doesn't really happen until the end of time. But it's a lesson for us. It really is. And we're going to see the situation for the nation of Israel tonight. We're going to see prayerfully a lot of different lessons that are woven in as we go through. Now, one of the things about Isaiah 29, and sometimes you see it in some of the prophets, is that there's a lot of you know, shifting and talking about different things. And it's for that reason we're, we're probably only going to be able to get through one chapter. And so we, he, we read here, uh, verse 1, Isaiah 29. It says, Woe to Ariel, to, to Ariel the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around, yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound, and I will raise siege work against you. 
You shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground. And your speech shall whisper out of the dust. And you're like, man, what is Isaiah talking about here, you know? And you guys remember, real quick, Isaiah is obviously a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel and primarily the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, and you're going to see that he talks a lot about Jesus and he talks a lot about even the millennial kingdom and uh, God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Now here in verse 1, uh, Isaiah mentions Ariel, which is another name for the city of Jerusalem. Notice again there in verse 1, it says the city where David dwelt. And so this is in reference to Jerusalem. And Isaiah here pronounces a woe upon Jerusalem. Now the name Ariel, it literally means line of God. And more than likely, when you look at it, commentators believe that they were probably calling themselves Ariel. They were probably referring to themselves in that way, like, hey, we're, we're a lion. We're like the king of the jungle. You know, it, it's kind of interesting to me because when you read the commentators and you kind of study this out, uh, in, in one sense, maybe this com- southern kingdom of Judah was a little prideful. Isn't it interesting that lion family units are referred to as prides? So we're going to see Judah's prideful, uh, and God is going to knock them down off of their high horse. You know, commentators speak about the fact that Judah was flying high with lion-like pride because it was a city of David. It was Jerusalem. That's where the kings ruled. David was, in one sense, the epitome of the kings. You read Genesis 49.9 and Revelation 5, verse 5, and they connect Judah's kings to a lion. And so this is the city where David dwelt, the city of kings, flying high, but about to be humbled. And so he's pronouncing a woe to Ariel. It says there in verse 1, add year to year, let feasts come around. What's he talking about? He's talking about the, the feast that they celebrated every year, and it really didn't matter that they'd been around many years. Maybe they were prideful of that. It didn't matter that they celebrated the feast, the religious feasts. Um, the people were, in all reality, not right in God's sight. They were lifted up, and so God would bring them down to reality. We read it there. Look again, if you would, at verse 2. Yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. And so, so God here is just saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you this distress and heaviness and sorrow right there at the end of the verse where he says, it shall be to me as Ariel. More than likely, what God is saying is uh, you're calling yourself the lion. I'm going to be the lion because I'm the king. You can kind of like call me Ariel, so to speak. And what God is teaching uh, them, he's teaching us, he's dealing with me, I know always in this, whole, in this area of pride. It's something that, that I think we all struggle with and we need to heed the warnings. I need to take up my cross, I need to deny myself, I need to humble myself. And it rears its ugly heads in so many different ways in my marriage, with my you know, kids. I mean, you name it. I mean, pride can always show up. And so um, we have to heed the warnings. Um, Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
And so what's God doing? How is he going to humble them? Look, if you would, again at verse 3. God says, I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with the mound. I will raise up siege works against you. Right there, God is talking about a siege, and more than likely, it's in reference to uh, the siege of Assyria. Now, when you guys study the, the history, we're going to see it later in the book of Isaiah, the Assyrian army, the Assyrians were crazy, man. We talked a little bit about these guys. They would literally flay you. They would skin you alive. They would cut out your tongue. They would cut out limbs. They would you know, put up mounds of skulls. I mean, they were just, they were the beginning of terrorists. That's the, it started with the Assyrians. They were bad. And so God was going to allow the Assyrians to come and he, they would surround the city of Jerusalem for an extended period of time. And God, in that, he would humble them to the point where we read there in verse 4 that they would brought, be brought down and they would speak out of the ground. Uh, they would speak there out of the dust. And more than likely, what that's in reference to is God would bring them to the point of where they were just praying from the bottom. I mean, they were there. They were desperate. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you've ever been there, but this is a, a situation where, you know, the, it's not just life and death for you. It's life and death for the whole city. You're wondering what's the future of our nation. And man, the, all they had left was to, to pray. Because when you're surrounded by 185,000 crazy Assyrian soldiers, you are desperate. And so God would bring them to that place and they would ask for deliverance. Kind of like Louis Zamperini, 47 days floating in the raft in the middle of the ocean. And I tell you what, when you read his story, it's amazing the things they had to do and, you know, seeing their, you know, their, so, their fellow soldiers die one at a time and just the way that they would have to, you know, scrape for food and, and just, you know, are you going to live? And so they prayed from the ground, they prayed from the dust. And look what happens in verse 5. It says, Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant, suddenly, you will be punished by the Lord of hosts. Now he's talking about the Assyrians. He's talking about the enemies of Israel. They're going to be punished. So a minute ago, they were brought low because they were surrounded by the Assyrians, but they prayed from the dust, and God shows up, and God says, I'm going to deal with them. Verse 6 again, you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And then, because we see this in the prophets, Isaiah gets like eschatological, right? He goes beyond Assyria uh, to the end of time, to all nations. He says, the, the multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her, they're going to be defeated. It shall be a dream of a night vision. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams and look, he eats, but he awakes and his soul is still empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and look, he drinks, but he awakes and indeed he is faint and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all nations shall be who fight 
against Mount Zion. And, you know, for us in Israel, having to, to know this, when they go through trials, they know ultimately they, they prevail. It, it is very beneficial. You know, we're going to see, we're not too far away, Isaiah 37, the defeat of the Assyrian army. You guys remember the story? A lot of you probably do, huh? How one angel, it was uh, no doubt Jesus, came down and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. You know, one moment Israel's in the dust, praying like crazy. The next moment Israel's enemies are turned to dust. That's what the Bible says. Dying and all their dreams with them. What is the dream of the devil? What is the dream? In one sense, the dream of the devil is to wipe out Israel. I mean, you talk to, you know, the time of Esther and what was going on there, you know, with, with Haman. And you talk to, you know, Hitler. And you talk to things going on in the Middle East and all the Arab nations that come. That's their dream in one sense. But the dream, it, it, turns, it turns to dust. And so, you know, we're going to see it there with Assyria, um, different aspects with Babylon. Throughout the history of Israel, you fast forward to Ezekiel 38, the invasion of, of Russia, and you could see the things happening today. You guys know what's going on over there in, in Russia. Th- those are, are things that can easily, just like that, lead to Ezekiel 38, which is the invasion of the Russia and Turkey and you got Iran and man, it seems like things are lining up again. No man knows the day or the hour. I'm not going to say this is it, but it sure seems like it can be. We better be ready, right? And so, uh, but God's going to defeat them. God will defeat. This is what we're reading right here. And not only that, when you read your Bibles and you see the Battle of Armageddon there um, at the end of the tribulation period, Revelation 16, Revelation 19, Revelation uh, 20, that the, at the end of the millennial kingdom, basically what all these nations are doing is coming against Israel and against Jerusalem, and God will defeat them. See, all Israel's enemies, all of our enemies will be utterly defeated so much so that the threat of those nations, those pagans, those demons at the end of time will vanish away and the dream of the devil will never be attained. I don't know if you guys have ever had dreams like that. I, I don't think I have. Have you ever had a dream where you're eating something and then you wake up and you're still hungry? Have you guys ever done that? I've never done that. I heard about one guy who dreamed about he, he ate a marshmallow and he, and he woke up and his pillow was missing. I heard something that, that one time. <laughs> But I've never had a dream like that. But anyways, what the Lord is just saying, it's like, man, they're surrounding Israel, and you know, whether it be this time or that time, and they think they got them. It's like they're right there, and God says, oh, no. Oh, no, that, that ain't going to happen. Because God, he protects his people. And so, you know, back to Isaiah's day, you know, wouldn't you think, man, that after such a great God-given victory over their enemies, the Assyrians, that they would get right in God's sight? Wouldn't you think that? I mean, when you read uh, about what happened, uh, the the Assyrians came, surrounded uh, Jerusalem. It was 701 B.C., and you would think that, you know, they would get right. It was under the, the reign of Hezekiah. But, you know, it looked like a revival. It looked like it was real. But then Hezekiah's son Manasseh comes and he rules in Jerusalem, and he is the worst king. He is the worst king because what ended up happening was that that revival was only superficial. 
It wasn't real. But you would figure after such a great victory, deliverance, that they would just be sold out and surrender, completely committed, that they would give their heart to Christ, you know, to the, to the Lord. But they, they didn't. Look what happens. It says in verse 9, pause and wonder. This is a trip. Blind yourselves and be blind. Now, that's a, a, an important verse. Notice it says blind yourselves and be blind. And so, you know, God is going to send, in one sense, a spiritual stupor, but it begins with them having blinded themselves first. The blindness is self-induced and therefore followed by further blindness from God. It says they are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I I am not literate. I mean, they, it makes Isaiah's, it makes us, he's encouraging us to pause and wonder after such a great victory, how could they not be, I mean, just completely passionate about God? I mean, he's just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Isaiah was there. We look and we read the book of Isaiah and we're like, man, this is a, a cool book. It's, you know, 66 chapters. Imagine how, you know, what it would have been um, just hearing him. He prophesied, but what did they do? They closed their ears. They closed their minds. They, they covered their eyes there in their ears. They hardened their hearts. They, they didn't allow even the national victory to sink in and lead them to spiritual victory. You know, they'd end up, uh, according to our passage here, spiritually drunk and asleep in a deep sleep. Uh, they were under the impression that this message, which eventually became the scroll of Isaiah, was sealed. Here, can you uh, interpret this? No, it's sealed. What do you mean it's sealed? It means that you can't understand it. You, you can't understand it. It cannot be understood. And so, um, you know, well, then God said, okay, you say that you, you won't understand it. Then the day will come when you can't understand it. See, we, as we read this Bible right here, I don't, we should never say, I can't understand it. We can say, Lord, give me insight. Holy Spirit, teach me. I don't care where you are in the Bible. The, some people say, oh, churches shouldn't teach the book of Revelation. It's like a sealed book. No, it's not. It's, not. it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so that's, first of all, Isaiah's got this message He's got this scroll. He's even putting it on a scroll. They're like, no, we can't. We don't even want to read it because we can't understand it. So he gives it to someone who's illiterate, who can't read. Now, let me ask you guys a question. I want you to think this for a second. If I had a message from God, a message from God, and I asked you to, to, to read it, and let's just say you didn't know how to read, what would you do? You would learn how to read. You would learn how to read. Because that's a message from God. While they just said, oh, sorry, I'm, you know, can't read. 
And what we're seeing in one sense, and it happens in the church a lot, is that people, they're not into the word, they're not into the message, because number one, they think they can't understand it, and, and really it shows a spiritual lethargy, a spiritual laziness. This is God's word to us. You know, what we find is, as a result of this, them close, closing their eyes, covering their ears, covering their heads, and in one sense it means covering their minds, Hardening their hearts is that God would then solidify them in that position. You know, when we look at scriptures about these things, what we find is some principles. In Isaiah 6, I was wondering if you could turn there real quick. This is kind of like how it all began. It didn't stop Isaiah from prophesying, but this is how the Lord said it would be for him. Remember when Isaiah said, here am I, send me? And in verse 9, he said, go and God said, go and tell this, this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and, and be healed. Now, now you read that right there, and it almost sounds like God is saying, um, like, do it on purpose. Like, you know, preach the word, and they're not going to understand, and, and, and then just enhance that, you know, and, and, you know, help them to be, you know, spiritually, you know, asleep or, or, or drunk. I mean, it almost sounds like that. But, but if you go to Matthew 13, I've always appreciated this insight. In Matthew 13, we read in verse 10, the disciples came and said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him more will be given, and he who will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he what he has will be taken away from him. I'll tell you what, you guys start learning the Bible and you start like reading it and all of a sudden it starts making sense and then you continue to study it and read it, you're just going to be so blessed. But, but if people like read it in a superficial way and not really in, you know, interested, then in one sense it starts to really make less sense and it's kind of the way it works. And so what we find right here, the Lord says in verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now I believe that God started speaking to them in parables because he really wanted to reach them. And sometimes you know, people just don't understand straightforward Bible teaching, so you have to tell them stories, right? And it's okay. It's God's way of trying to reach them. And so in verse 14 it says, And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. Why, Lord, why? And it says right there, For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. See, it's not God closing their eyes. It starts with us. They have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But he tells his disciples, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. And that's what we see here in Isaiah. 
you know, these people, unfortunately, had, in one sense, you know, blinded themselves. So God said, okay, then it's going to grow that way. And they closed their minds and, okay, well, that's going to, so the hearts, you heart, you harden your heart. You know, you're like, well, I'm not really interested. I, I not, then God will, God will honor that. And that's what was going on after God had delivered them such a great deliverance. You know, in my life, I have failed God so many times, and there's so many way, times that he could have given up on me. He has delivered me. I remember getting hit by a, a car, you know, when I was five years old. I was on crossing Pacific Coast Highway, you know, on the beach, and the cars are driving fast right there. I remember, I remember being on the hospital, you know, whatever, this metal thing, and I, I, I survived that. Many times, I've told you guys before, I should have died, you know, drunk driving, not knowing uh, even how did I get home last night? Oh, you drove. Why? Man, God spared me. And I just start looking at my life and just even the fact that he saved me. He has delivered me from the Assyrians. You know, so there I am at the bottom praying. God, God spares us. And so doesn't it make sense that you would live your life for him? Like when Louis Zamperini finally gave his life to Christ he spent the last 65 years serving God, good friends with Billy Graham, reaching the youth. See, what we're finding right here is unfortunately Israel didn't do that. And it just makes us wonder. You know, revival, it, it looks good, but you just wonder, man, is it real? Look at, at verse 13. It says, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore behold, I will again. And you might want to circle that word again. Because, you know, when you're listening to Bible teachers and you're studying this, a lot of these guys, they miss a lot of this because maybe they're teaching five chapters and you can't really get too much. But that word right there, when I saw it, I said, that means a lot because the first time they were surrounded by the Assyrians. But for whatever reason, they didn't get it. So that was in 701 B.C. You fast forward to 586 B.C. I mean, over 100 years, God gave them over 100 years to get right. And they didn't. And so when it happens again, then God's going to deal with them in a more severe way. Behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. You know, they were blind. Why were they blind? Why were they drunk, lacking spiritual sobriety? Why were they so sleepy? Why? Because their hearts were not right. It was a matter of the heart. The commitment was only superficial. They had removed their hearts far away from God. You know, God never moves. God doesn't move away. We do, right? The NLT puts it this way. And so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They say they are mine. They say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. In other words, and New King James says their fear toward God it was, was just mechanical. It was, 
It was man-made machine. It wasn't a movement of the Holy Spirit. It is so easy for us to fall into a rut and routine it where it becomes habit and not heart. And this is what we find here. Jesus has quoted this in the, in the Gospels and Matthew 15, 8, also Mark chapter 7, verse 6. He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah say of you, hypocrites, it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, and that's where, you know, guys, I want to encourage you, you know, to, to make sure that it's not just a, a religion, it's not just something you do on a Sunday or, or even a Thursday. You're like, well, we're really good Christians, you know, because we go to the midweek service or, or whatever. You could be reading your Bible every day, but it might just be out of habit. And, and, and the heart, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart you know, what's going on inside of us? The Lord says, these people, they know what to say, man. They got the Christian cliches down. They draw near to me with their lips, you know, and they might sing the songs. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're in the right, the right place. You know, God right here says that he's going to respond um, in verse 14. Uh, I will again do a marvelous work among this people. And, and, and what that marvelous work is, believe it or not, is, is a work of judgment. Now, this is where I was telling you guys, and I just, I just, I don't know where you're at. I know I fail the Lord sometimes, man. And I, and I go in and I talk to him and I get so convicted of uh, the failure that, that I've done or whatever, you know. And the Lord, you know, he's a gracious God to forgive us. He's so gracious. But man, for me, it's just I'm super like sensitive, man. I, I, just, I just fear him because I know that if he wants to, man, he can just remove everything, strip me of everything because he's an awesome God. He's a holy God. And what we find right here is that's what God ends up doing to Israel. He's going to take them out, and he's going to, they're going to, the Babylonians are going to now surround them, and they're going to be judged in such a severe way. Listen, it doesn't have to get that far. If we would have a fear of God, a fear of God that is, that is right, it's not man-made, it's not a road, it's not a routine, it's not a rut. God, you're awesome, and I fear you. I fear your holiness. I fear your discipline. You know, this is what he's saying right here. God would respond in a marvelous way. And, and it reminds me of what Habakkuk wrote when Habakkuk was wondering, Lord, what's going on here? These people, they're so bad. And, you know, when are you going to bring revival? When are you going to deal with this? And Habakkuk was praying for revival. And God says, well, I will eventually do it, but I'm not going to do it like you think I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And that's what Habakkuk is all about. It says in Habakkuk 1 verse 5, Look among the nations and watch and be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans. It's kind of like the same thing, this marvelous work, this work, it just blows your mind. It's a warning. And I, and I think, you know, guys, we would, be in great, we would be in great place, you know, if we understood that, that beautiful balance between his grace and his holiness. And if we would just, you know, come out of the world. You know, maybe there's some here, and 
I, I was even think like in a Bible teaching church and even a church like this, we're not like a big church, you know, but, you know, we kind of know each other, but you would figure that in a church like this, that people would not be engaged in sexual sin. They would not be, you know, doing drugs or getting high. They would not be, you know, filled with pride or, you know, just mistreating their spouse or, or their friends or, or, you know, financial lack of integrity or whatever it might be, those secret sins in the dark. You, but unfortunately, we find is that there's many that don't fear God. And so this is where God would say, here, let me share this message with you to, to clean house. Let's just come clean. Let's walk before him in holiness. Look at verse 15. He says, Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel, Far from the Lord. And their works are in the dark. And they say, well, who sees us? And who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? You know, they they just like, I guess, I don't know why the, some people buy into that lie. They think they can hide their sins from God. It's futile to do. It's futile to attempt. In this passage, we're reminded God sees us, God knows us, God made us, and God forms us. And all of those things are, are huge. You know, I remember, um, you know, because right here they're, they're saying that they think that they can hide and, and who knows us. Um, I remember one time, you know, there was a, a guy in the church who was a pastor, and he was he went far away to another restaurant. He thought over there he can get drunk, and there was someone from the church that just happened to be in that restaurant. They saw him getting drunk. I mean, you guys know this, huh? We have to just know this that if there is a consistent, insistent, persistent sin that we don't want to repent of, God will shout it from the mountaintops. You guys know that, right? We can't pull the wool over his eyes. Psalm 139 says he knows when we sit and when we stand and we, we travel 186,000 miles per second, the speed of light. We take the shadow of the wings in the morning. We can't hide from him. You know, what we find is people don't think God's even there, that he can see, that he knows, that he made us, that he forms us, but he does all those things. The world claims to be a product of evolution, and they teach it in their schools, I mean, all the way through their educational system. Um, you know, I, I think Romans one twenty five, where it says that they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, I think that lie is evolution. I, I really do. Because if you take God out of the equation, the God that made us, then, man, you got free reign for anything else that your culture wants to give. Now, they believe in evolution. Given enough time, we could be evolved. Um, one man, uh, his name is interesting, uh, Jacques Bonnard. He was a famed and esteemed French biochemist, co-winner of the Nobel Prize in Physiological Medicine in 1965. He, he, he said this. Let me see if I can read this. He said, Chance alone is at the source of every innovation of all creation in the biosphere, Pure chance, absolutely free but blind at the very root of the stupendous edifice of evolution. 
And so the smart people of our day, they think that we are the product of random chance, pure chance. And we see that our society is suffering because of that teaching. You know, evolution teaches that. And he did not make me. You know, and that's what Isaiah is talking about even back in his days. Look again in verse 16. Surely you have things turned around. You know, shall the potter be esteemed as the clay for... Shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Yes, God did make us. You guys, we're in his hands. The only question is, will we get our hearts right so that we be formed as vessels of honor? You know, there's a cool passage in Jeremiah 18. I was wondering if you would turn there. And I like this because I think it kind of goes hand in hand with what this whole lesson in Isaiah 29 is all about. In Isaiah, I mean, Jeremiah 18, it says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. And then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. And then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, here it is. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. And so if you can visualize like the potter and he's got the, the clay at the wheel and, it, and he's making something out of it, right? But then as he's making something out of it, it gets marred in the potter's hands. And so what Jeremiah saw was, but then the, the clay kind of like yielded to the potter. And then, you know, the second time around, so to speak, he was able to make something out of it. And it's kind of like what we're reading about in, in Israel's day. They messed up. They, they, they messed up. So the, the Assyrians came and God humbled them and, and they prayed and God gave them kind of like a second chance. And even though Jeremiah is saying, well, the word is you're going to be judged, they turned from their evil, it says here, and God showed them grace. And, and what the Lord has really just been laying on my heart, ladies, we have to grow. We have to change. You know, I know that's very rare, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can become overcomers. And in the, in the Lord's hands, you know, as we just, man, we give him our heart, like, Lord, not just religion, not just routine, not just habit, but, man, Lord, I'm all yours. And he starts dealing with our prayer life. He starts dealing with our marriages. He starts dealing, you know, with all the different aspects of, of, our, of our heart. I mean, wanting it to be real. 
lest, unfortunately, you have to deal with this in a way that is much more severe. And so back in Isaiah, you know, this clay, God, you guys know God sees you? How many of you guys know God sees you? God sees everything, right? Even if you turn off all the lights, man. And God knows you. And that's a cool thing, huh? He knows you. I, I think of the children of Israel in, in, in Egypt. And he, he made us to begin with, and he's forming us now. I mean, all those things are present realities. You know, 2 Timothy 2.10, it says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. So which will you be? I guess in one sense, it's like make a choice. Will you be a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor? He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And so we we need to make changes. If we do, and here's the beautiful promise, God has this future for us that is so amazing. Can you think about it just for a second? I know some of you here, you know, none of us are perfect, but, but some of you guys, you, you love the Lord and, and you're proper, man. And I just thank God for that, you know. But there might be some here who have just not really been taking your walk with God seriously. Imagine if I could just speak to you for a second. Imagine what would happen to your life if you did. If you did, if you gave him every area of your life, do you realize how blessed you will be? Even Israel, he he talks about that. Look in, in verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? probably when Isaiah is writing, the Assyrians have uh, invaded Lebanon, and so it's not right. And, 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 and what Isaiah is saying, it's just a little while. It's just, it'll be here before you know it. You know, one day the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is a one day, just a little while, and everything is going to be the way that God wants it to be. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Imagine what type of vision that is. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. You know, what we find is that God is is speaking here of the ministry of Jesus and how eventually, yes, it will include Israel, the redeemed will receive him and even the Jews, the Holy One of Israel who heals. And you know, when Jesus is here and he's healing people physically, that's literally showing his power, but it's also in one sense spiritually showing what he can do. Um, I have really bad eyes. My eyes are 20 over 200. I'm half blind, man. Um, but I turn on my, put on my contacts and I can see. But imagine like being able to see like Superman or something, you know, like seeing even more. You know, and, I, and I'm not talking about being weird, but I'm just talking about like spiritual discernment. You know, just understanding God right here. He says, I'll, I'll, you'll see better. I mean, you'll, you'll hear better. You'll, you'll walk better. I mean, it's just a complete awesome work that God does. And not only that, it's going to be during the millennial kingdom. 
And it was a spiritual transformation of the once spiritually insensitive nation. You guys know that in the end, Israel will be saved? You guys know that? And, and you guys know that it's right around the corner? It says right here, in, in just a little while, just a few days on God's calendar, you know? And so not only does Jesus give his people the victory, but he thoroughly defeats the enemy. We see in verse 20, for the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off. Who make a man an offender by a word and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and turn aside the just by empty words. And he's talking about Israel, and he's talking about how one day, you know, they're going to be there in the millennial kingdom, and eventually, you know, we're going to have the, we're going to live in the city of Jerusalem in heaven. I mean, it's going to be so amazing. And not only do we get that kind of victory, but God is just saying here, and I just want you to know that I'm going to defeat all of your enemies. Right there in verse 20, when it refers to the terrible one being brought to nothing, uh, Pastor Chuck, he sees the terrible one as the Antichrist and the scornful, scornful one as the false prophet. And I think that's very possible. Just you know, thinking about the defeat of our enemies, I know for sure it has to do with the devil and his followers and all who have that evil eye. You know, what a day that will be, huh? When we see our enemies defeated. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then we see the future favor on the family of Jacob. It says in verse 22, And therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hollow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding and those who complained will learn doctrine. I mean, you look at the history of Israel, you know, and at one time they were here spiritually uninterested, asleep, uh, blind, deaf, uh, not willing to understand or even try to understand. And then would you see, would you see what happens at the end? How, you know, in one sense, if you guys can visualize it, they're there in the millennial kingdom and, and these, these Jews are there looking at their children serve God. And that's what brings us joy, right? More than anything else. Right there in verse 22, therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. You know, when I, when I see like the spiritual descendants serving the Lord, I know for me, even thinking of my children, I think, Lord, that's where the joy is. And this is the work that God wants to do, you guys. As it begins in us, and then we pass it on to our children. And, and not always even the biological children, although that's part of it. Um, as you guys serve the Lord, you're going to see others, man. They're going to see that you're going to make a difference in their life. One last thing, as I was uh, doing some research on Louis Zamperini, I actually got most of my information from an individual who got saved 
through Louis Zamperini. And it was a really interesting story. You guys, uh, how many of you guys have seen the movie? I'm just curious. Read the book. Okay, a lot of you guys have. Now, the, 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 the story talks about the fact that this uh, guy, Louis Zamperini, was beaten daily almost by a, a Japanese, uh, I don't know, guard or soldier or whatever. Uh, called, I think his name was the bird or something like that. And, um, and, and so he just, man, he would beat him. And like I said earlier, he would beat him more severely because he was an Olympic, an American Olympian. And so um, the guy that wrote this article for USA Today on the life of Zamperini said that, that this is what reached him and this is what saved him because he said that he was a man that had a hard time forgiving. He just could not move that mountain. He just could not have that, that shift in his heart to forgive someone, which got in the way, which ruined his relationship with God. He just could not do it until he read the way Louis Zamperini forgave the man who beat him for two years straight. And, and what I find, is it's so cool, what we find, we're kind of reading it here today, that the children, imagine your children in, in the kingdom. Imagine your children in heaven. Or even if I could say, in one, not just biological, but imagine how beautiful and how wonderful it will be. Not that we ever even begin to touch the glory because no, it's got nothing to do with us. But imagine when you're there in the kingdom one day because of your faithfulness, you will see all these people that God has touched because you were faithful in the ministry that God gave you. What an awesome thought, huh? And I think in one sense, that last point, it touches on that. And so I just want to encourage you guys, let's be holy. Let's be wholehearted. Let's give him everything. Let's just find out where he wants us to serve him. And, and whatever that is, let's be faithful. Because if we do, I know God's going to do a great work.